Episode 47 of the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about some public order policing. Here we go. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. This is episode 47 of the Taxville Breakdown podcast. If you are brand new here, thank you for being here. Welcome. This is the podcast if you are in law enforcement training. It's also a fantastic resource for all law enforcement officers around the world and first responders and military members as well, depending on what you're looking for. We have some of the top instructors and experts from around the world sharing their knowledge with you. Today is no exception. I had the honor of having a long conversation with one of my friends, Mr. Lee Patterson, out of Vancouver, Canada. Um, Of course, we're up here in Canada, so this was a fun conversation I got to have with him all about public order policing. He was also one of our speakers for the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. If you weren't able to get into the summit when we ran it live in July, uh, you still have a chance. You can still go to iletsummit.com. And if you use the promo code BREAKDOWN, you're going to save some money and you can get in on the lifetime all-access version and get access to all of the content that we created. Not just the training videos, but all of the downloadable resources, the session notes, um, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of training that you can get for under 100 bucks if you use that promo code BREAKDOWN. Um, so without any further ado, let's get into this conversation I have with Lee and uh, start talking public order. Here we go. We're going we're gonna to have a really interesting conversation today because we don't really have one set point that we're going to talk on, but there's a lot of stuff that's going on right now. And there's you have a very unique perspective having worked in law enforcement, both in Canada and in the UK. There are a few people that have done both, but there aren't a lot. So while I have you, I'm going to definitely try to pick your brain as much as I can to to try to let anybody listening to this in on just some of the differences between policing in the UK or in other Commonwealth countries versus in Canada or in the United States, because there is a pretty significant difference. And I know a lot of our listeners are in North America. We do have listeners all around the world in 53 countries. Actually, I checked earlier today, 53 countries we've been downloaded. in. so if you're listening to this and you're in uh, in one of those one off countries, thank you so much for for your support and being here and with us. It's really, really cool. Let's dive into it, Lee. Let's let's talk about it, man. What was the biggest difference coming over from the UK to Canada? What was the biggest difference in policing that you found right when you hit the ground running here? That's a great question. And uh, I guess there are multiple things that I saw. Um, I guess the biggest thing initially was uh, the UK policing system. Uh, and I'm going back to when I left um, 2002, I left. Obviously, it wasn't particularly a service in the UK where everybody was armed. Police officers, for the majority of police officers on the ground in the United Kingdom, are not armed. We don't have a sidearm. I started off with a wooden truncheon. Uh, the female officers at the time had a, and this is a bizarre thing, a, a truncheon that actually went into their handbag 
if you can believe that. And um, yeah, it was uh, very much uh, the Bobby on the beat scenario, as you would look at it on the news. Uh, but we worked major cities. So we worked big events, major cities. We had terrorism and all of the things that you are bad in policing to have to deal with. But we were unarmed. And um, for many years, I didn't have a stab-proof vest. I think that came uh, two or three years before I left. And by the time I was sized up for that vest, uh, it was time to leave and come to Canada. So I think coming to Canada, arriving at the Justice Institute of British Columbia, as a sergeant I was when I left in England and I became a new recruit, it was like going back to the floor. And legislation law, maybe we can talk about that, was similar. Um, but my first thing I saw was the first few days of the academy, you know, we were given a handgun and um, given pepper spray or CS spray. And, you know, in England, even that spray in England is treated as a firearm. And we were taking people down uh, with a red plastic gun in the gymnasium, uh, which was totally alien to me, that the training had to focus uh, in Canada to the firearm aspect. And certainly in England, that wasn't training. I'd had some firearms training, but that wasn't at the forefront of training. And I think that's when I knew I truly arrived in, in a different country, in a different police in method uh, and uh, yeah, that was the biggest, I guess it's a shock, the biggest difference. I knew I was going to be armed in Canada and I wasn't overly worried, but two days into the academy being given the equipment, the gun belt, that was the significant change. And I realized I was here and uh, I can actually tell you an interesting, or I think it was a funny story. Uh, it was a couple of weeks into the academy and we were practicing um, serving warrants uh, or dealing with a deranged man, a deranged person inside a house. And uh, we're in a simulation, and I remember knocking the door of the house. And uh, I actually shouted in my best British accent, uh, you know, the occupant of the building, uh, this is the armed police, come out and show your hands or something. Very TV. And the instructor calmly just laughed and said, dude, we're all armed in Canada. You don't need to say that the guy inside will assume that you're armed. And I think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of looked at him and went, oh, oh yeah. Because <laughs> in England, obviously, knocking a door with a firearms unit was a big deal to the public. So, uh, yeah, I've had my fun. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really interesting. And obviously, you know, my experience has all been, in, in any police training, firearms have been an aspect of training. Yeah. When... When we talk about just the difference in culture mm -hmm. from between now, it's there are and and for people listening to this, there there is a major difference. It's not, you know, a lot of people in Europe equate Canada and the U.S. to be somewhat similar. Yes. Um, and then the U.S. equates Canada and the U.K. and other Commonwealth countries to be somewhat similar. So it's it's interesting because we're kind of in the middle here in Canada. We kind of we pick and choose. We have bits and pieces from everywhere. Um, and you know, why is it that, I mean, is it just that, you know, the fi obviously firearms related offenses are s so much less, um, prevalent in the UK and other Commonwealth countries, um, than they are in the U S and, and also in Canada. But why is it culturally that the, the law enforcement agencies there haven't switched to a more firearm centric, um, model? 
Yeah, that's a great question again. Uh, you certainly put me on my toes here. There, there's, um, I have some views on it, not necessarily uh, grounded in any academic research, um, but I do feel there is a changing, a difference in culture in the UK. And certainly when I was there and I said uh, I served uh, in the military 86 to 92, so from 92 to 2002, those 10 years, there was uh, bobbies, as I call them. Uh, police officers themselves did not want weapons. We had the stick, it later became the ass baton or the casco baton. Um, we had uh, rigid handcuffs were brought in from chain handcuffs. And we had, you know, the spray. Um, and, and we dealt with such uh, variance in incidents uh, where officers would feel that they were not safe wearing the weapon. The soccer hooligan, the protests, the public disorder, uh, having that weapon at your side, uh, a couple of officers in large neighborhoods, you know, tens of thousands of people, the culture's different. Officers were actually asked by the federations, um, which is similar to a union, whether they wanted weapons. And I remember two or three times during the 10 years being asked, and the majority of officers said no. Uh, they did not want the weapon, and more so that they would actually be leaving the department if they were made to carry one, which was an interesting turnaround where officers themselves were saying, you make me carry a gun, I'll be leaving. That's not what I signed up for. Um but I, I, I do know over the years, you know, obviously with the terrorism in particular moving from the IRA and the impacts of the IRA to the current type of attacks that we're getting right now across the world, um, the firearm support element has become more and more integrated into the general policing models. Um, but I do recall incidents where, you know, we had a man with a shotgun and the firearm support team would turn up in my day and I expected, half expected the firearms team to go to the door and knock the door. Well, they put the vest on me, a bulletproof vest on me, took my stab-proof vest off, put the bulletproof vest on and said, go knock the door and we'll be behind the wall. And when you question it, they say, well, if you get taken out, we're here. If we get taken out, there's no one and the guy's on the street. So yeah, there's a huge training culture difference um, and a huge perception of wearing that weapon from the police officers themselves. Uh, it's an interesting question and a dilemma. Now that we have a different threat from around the world, I think we will see more weapons in the UK. And do I think they'll be routinely armed? I don't. I still think the Bobby on the beat image is an image that the police in the UK are very proud of and the public are used to. It'll take still a huge culture shift. But I do think they're going to have, you know, as they are doing, have more and more support from the firearm units. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a really interesting conversation. A really good friend of mine, Brian Ward, is out in New Zealand. And we had a talk and we briefly, we briefly mentioned and talked about the, the Christchurch shooting, mm -hmm. um, the mosque shooting that had happened and how that changed the way that they had done, had they conducted themselves, their agencies, um, and going to where having all officers have access to firearms and now not necessarily on their person, but definitely in their vehicles. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, they're kind of, again, in that they're in like in another lane that's in between what you're doing and in between what uh, the UK and Canada is doing. Hmm. So, I mean, there's, there's all these different models. And do you think, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is there is a pretty high prevalence of like knife and uh, uh, you know knife 
and those types of weapons related crime in the UK because there isn't so many firearms. But if that's the case, I mean, when we look at traditional use of force models and we don't have to debate use of force models, but talking about use of force, we de- in North America, we deem somebody producing a knife as, you know, deadly force. And so our our option then is to use and draw our firearm to try to prevent them from causing harm to other people or or the officer or themselves. Obviously, that's not an option in the UK. So where where does I'm just curious as to why what the option is if you know if somebody produces a knife and all you have um, like you had said is a trudgeon and for those listening a trudgeon is basically a baton. Um, they were just like a solid wooden or polymer baton. But now, like you said, now there's ASPs and OC and things like that. Possibly even CEWs. I don't know if they carry CEWs, but um, what what is the option then for for the officers? If somebody, if there's a suspect that pulls a knife on them and they're not armed, where where are they supposed to go? What are they supposed to do? Well, I think uh, the, the the H department over there uh, issues their own equipment although it's all nationally governed uh, as as it's you know all of the equipment given to has to be authorized through the the central body over there however like in my day we had initially like i said the wooden truncheon and it was literally a piece of willow and it's we stuck it down the in, the outside of our i call them trouser leg pant leg uh, with a piece of leather which went under my belt and that was the thumb strap so you know, and I'm not going back too far. Like we're only talking, uh, what, uh, 2000, uh, 1992. So 2002, I, I, I think I'd had the extendable baton for a couple of years. So you have, the, you know, the 12-inch truncheon. It's a piece of wood. And when you're doing your use of force training back then, it was literally your someone's coming at you with a knife. It's making distance, verbal challenges verbal commands being a presence i happen to be six foot seven and in those days you know 250 pounds i'm a lot heavier now so i was quite an intimidating young guy but they taught you to have that presence um no matter what your size it was a male dominated department back then uh, it isn't so now um but their training was about de-escalation their training was focused on communication verbal communication skills um but if somebody came at you, you know, the deflection and everything you see in the training now was obviously well taught back then. We did a bit of jiu-jitsu, police judo or police jiu-jitsu, whatever your department gave you. But it was literally try and, you know, knock away the knife on the elbow or deflect. Um, and we had the shields. We were very large, largely dependent on crowd control or public order shields. Everybody in the department was public order trained back then. And the six-foot shield was six foot of distance you could put between a perpetrator. And I even see videos now, you know, all these years later of officers in England using that big flexible shield as a weapon, uh, deflector to, to put distance between. Uh, but yeah, there was that little bit of expectation that you were in harm's way. Um, but you don't know any different. You come into a police department, you get training, you don't know any different back then because we didn't have a gun option. So they give you the piece of wood, they give you the shield, and they give you the trainings and tactics to do it. And that's what was expected of you. And I've had multiple, uh, you're right about blades. I've had blades pulled on me. Um, looking back at some of the calls I went to in the UK, 
walking into a living room and somebody came at me with a large carving knife and the door deflected the blade and it stuck in the door and the two of us took the guy down with bare hands. You know, all of those types of call, uh, I'm still here. Uh, it doesn't mean it was the best training, doesn't mean it was the right training, but at the time with public perception, it was a training that we had. It was accepted by the community. It was accepted by the police chiefs. And um, looking back with some training I've had now, would I do it differently? Maybe. I couldn't give you a definitive answer. What's the best training? It was the training that you have at the time in society that the society would actually allow you to do. And, you know, I think that's the key is you have to police the community. And UK is still very much a community policing model based on Peel's principles that the police are part of the community and the community are our police and all of the other principles that exist. And they still are very much uh, entrenched on those principles. And uh, some would say it's, you know, time to move on and others would say, no, they're doing a good job. And here we are in 2020 and the majority of the British police force are not armed. And it seems to be working for them. Not to say that what we're doing here in Canada with this hybrid model between America and Britain, as you called it, or alluded to, is not the right model either. Um, I think the I think the community has to accept the model of the policing, and I'm not sure yet that the UK is ready for police officers to be armed. Um, there is also uh, the consideration of where the officers actually come from, the numbers of the officers, and how well trained they are. Um, and that's perhaps another discussion is, you know, where do you recruit from? And uh, what are the standards of recruits? If you need more officers, you know, where do they come from? Not everybody in the UK has a degree. Um, officers in Canada, it's a very, very difficult job to get into. It's a well-paid job. And the officers in Canada, majority of them have got a degree. That is not the case in the UK who still to this day recruit heavy numbers and from the working class people, there is kind of a class structure still exists in, in lots of the UK and the Bobby, as I call it, was from the working class. And if you think about Peel's principle, a working class guy or girl working in the working class and a lot of the model, it's subtle, but it's there. You have working class people working amongst them, a working class. And it's still sort of a model the UK, I believe, still exists. You know, I, that's something I didn't, I wouldn't have thought was I would have, I would have thought that the UK's model for recruitment would have matched closer to what we did here, which is very, very interesting, right? Because I mean, when we talk, I mean, and it comes back to military experience, but obviously, as you know, with the the British armed forces and the Canadian armed forces, when we talk officers, like there's, there's a strict line. Like you, once, mm -hmm. if you, once you go into an officer, you have to have a degree. It's, it, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I, I guess my thought was it would have, we would have matched closer in the recruitment for law enforcement, but it's super interesting to find out that that's not the case. And I mean, from a, from a base level, it makes a lot of sense because it makes sense that, you know, an officer who's not necessarily armed, right, doesn't have a firearm, is asked to go into a community to to deal with these problems, but they're now part of that community. They're not coming from, they're not 
coming from the outside in trying to enforce laws, they're basically there in their own community with people that they've grown up with on their own block in their own area saying, hey, guys, like cut it out. This is, you know, not the time. And they have, I guess, a better community presence than maybe we do here with the way that we do things. So that's a, that's a very interesting conversation to have. Yeah, it's um, it's very subtle, and, and like you say, you know, you your military experience and mine, you know, I can, uh, it, it, I think it does form the base of who I am. But certainly, my father was, uh, you know, he was a sergeant in the army, and um, he was a working class guy from an inner city area of Birmingham. He became a sergeant, did very well for himself, you know, going back to the, the I guess the early late fifties when he joined the regiment. And uh, served his country very proudly. And then I, I come at the age of 16. I left school. We, we leave school earlier. There's another difference. I leave school at 16. I go to join the Royal Navy. Um, you know, my father happened to know the major in the recruitment center, followed my brother into the Royal Navy. Well, you know, the likelihood of me becoming an officer in the Royal Navy was slim to none at the time. Um, I wasn't from the background, the school. I was from an inner city school uh, with a father who was the working class rank of sergeants. I wasn't what they would appear to be. The working class would not be an officer candidate material. I joined the Navy and I'm certainly, they call it the lower deck, working below the decks. I was an aircraft mechanic working on helicopters, working around pilots who were officers who had degrees, working around engineers you know, I was a mechanic and they're engineers. So there is a, a very subtle difference in the armed forces. Um, there are opportunities to branch over to become an officer, uh, but you have to go to school and you have to, you know, take the lessons that they require you to make that jump. But then um, I think within the police department, everybody in the UK starts off as a constable. And it was a big difference. You know, in the military, you have two different lines to follow the what we called the ratings in the Royal Navy or the officer or in the police. Everybody starts off as an officer and you didn't have to have a degree. And the the amount that they were actually hiring, they liked people with experience of life. They liked people who'd worked on the shop floor in the factory. They liked people who perhaps hadn't had the best lifestyle. Uh, I'm not saying they had criminal records. I'm saying that they had experiences, unfortunately, of being in a fight or two, um, of being in communities where there'd been pub fights. They asked for, what are your life experiences? And I remember the interview process drawing out some of the Navy examples, where have I traveled, where have I been, what have I seen? And that's what makes, in my opinion, in the UK, a good officer, is that life experience. Um, I was 22 when I joined Still young, but I'd been around the world, the Navy, for six years. And then, you know, there's some phrases you hear all the time, education versus common sense. And a lot of the UK cops very quickly realize if they have common sense or not. Common sense is not, you you can try to gain it. You have it or you don't. And I think a lot of the British recruiting, the police officers, they have a lot of common sense. Um, they know when it's the bad time to walk through the bar um, because they've lived that life. They've been in those communities growing up. They've seen families, you know, literally having bar fights around them, the soccer hooligans, the strikes that have happened, uh, the demonstrations in the major cities. 
So I do think there is a subtle difference, and it's it's uh, more of a psychology um, and, a, and a different sort of conversation to have. But I found that when I came to Canada, um, there was a it was in my face because I, I was a working class kid from the inner city of Birmingham that perhaps Canadians wouldn't understand um, because a lot of the Canadian police departments hire uh, the perfect. Uh, perfectly educated, the extremely good, solid home background where mom and dad have brought up the children. You've been a member of the sports team, valedictorian at school. You've been to school. You've done volunteer work. You know, there's so much you have to do to get into a police department in Canada. You get paid a really, really good wage. It's a prestigious job to do for anybody in Canada. Yet in England, you know, as a working class kid, you know, I was proud to be a police officer in England. But when I came to Canada and I stood amongst the people in my class, even with 10 years service, having been a sergeant in England as a police officer, I was in awe of the people around me. You know, they were, they were the first day they're giving a spiel about their education and what they've done. And they, played softball for Canada or they'd been in the Olympic team. You know, they were athletes. They were educated. Uh, the cream of the community, there was a big difference. I think that's another huge distinguishing feature is Canadian policing is a pinnacle career for anybody who's done extremely well at university and has all of these uh, attributes in the UK. You know, it's it's still predominantly a working class, working a very prestigious job, well paid amongst the working class. Um, but there are other ways to make money. It's not an overly well paid job. It's not a safe job. Still a prestigious job. But if you really have those high qualifications and skills that you have as a Canadian officer, maybe policing is not something you'd be getting into in England. Or oh, sorry, Great Britain. Uh, you'd be finding a different career. They do have fast-track officers as well in the UK. Um, people with the degrees uh, can, in my day, come into the department four or five years. They spend six months or a year in each sort of area of policing and would become managers. And I see recently, over the last year or two, you know, they've fast-tracked even more where they're bringing people in at the managerial level without having had the police experience, which is, again, very unique um, so yeah, some vast differences that it's based on culture. It's based on schooling. It's based on, uh, your background, um, but some significant differences in policing. It's just fat. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is so interesting to listen to and, and find out like how, how it's different. I think there has to be a happy medium between picking, you know, the six foot four, 250 pound varsity athlete with a 4.0 GPA and picking the, you know, maybe less physically active or less uh, involved with sports person who maybe doesn't have a post-secondary degree and has maybe gotten a little bit of trouble in his life. Just from speaking with some agencies here in Canada, and I can't speak to anything in the US, but speaking to some guys up here in Canada, they're starting to to shift, I think, a little bit into more of the, you know, you're starting to see it where they're hiring 
you know, they're not hiring the the 18 to 20s anymore. They're hiring people that are in their late 20s, early 30s that have some life experience that have been around the block a little bit because they're better. I mean, I don't want to, to stereotype, but wholesale, like they're better, usually better communicators. They, you know, they have some experience to draw from. So they don't go to, they don't necessarily rely on that textbook answer every time. So, I mean, have in your experience, I mean, in, in Vancouver, but it, uh, in the West coast of Canada, have you seen there a little bit of a shift from the way that going from that top tier athlete, that div one athlete to, to more of a, a community uh, officer? I, I don't know whether uh, I'm in a position to sort of uh, answer the question. I'm not part of the recruiting process. What I do see um, are people uh, who are very, very uh, well-rounded. I don't know. I think the ages of the people will vary. Uh, I know in my department we have um, a very, very successful program to bring the younger people in to become auxiliary jail guards or community safety officers where they come into the into the police department. You know, and I think the very youngest you'd be is 19 or 20, uh, 21, 22. They bring the the people in, they actually join the Vancouver Police Department, in my case, and they work with officers uh, either in the jail, at community events, um, or do the traffic authority auxiliary work. And we, you know, the officers uh, work with them and share experiences. But those people uh, are very successful a couple of years into that program into becoming uh, police officers. So I think we're quite unique. Um, not the only ones doing it, but I think by bringing them in, people in early with great qualifications, with volunteer experience, picking the cream of the crop, you know, if you wish, attracting people into the department early at an early age, but giving them responsibilities that, you know, potentially would be unlike anything they've ever dealt with, um, you know, and then seeing how they do. But they learn those communication skills, the subtleties of policing that keeps you alive every day on the job, and then they hire. And I think that's probably the answer to your question. I don't see people coming in at a young age to the regular police department because we do have this, it's not a two-tier program, but a program that enables us to look at the younger recruits in our own environment. I've seen the people firsthand coming in and we hire some significantly fantastic people into the department. I can say that the quality is excellent. And I, I don't want to decry that in the UK when I worked there, you know, people without the degrees, people uh, were from the working class of people. It, it suited what the police departments needed there. They needed a lot of people, a lot of pair for hands and legs, and a lot of people willing to put their life on the line every day. You know, you need a little bit of steel to join a police department and a little bit of something. And it was a great career when I started way back when in the UK. I just found when I came to Canada that I felt, um, even with the service that I had, I felt in awe of the people around me. You know, they truly had some incredible, you know, they say you want to be the best of the best. I was with the best of the best even they were looking at me perhaps thinking, 
oh my, this guy's come from the UK, you know, he's six foot seven. I was fit back then. And he was a sergeant and he has all this policing experience and he has the accent and he's an ex-Navy guy. You know, maybe they were in awe of me, but I certainly felt at the time my ego had landed. You know, I uh, I was just in awe of the people that stood beside me at the academy. Yeah, sorry, Matt. I didn't mean to throw a curveball at you, but I no. wanted to. It was just uh, it was just kind of an intro. I wanted to get your thoughts on it's that. It's a great um, question. Let's let's shift gears here, and and this is something that I wanted to to ask you about because I mean this was the whole reason why you and I had got in touch, and the, and that was public order policing. And I've spoken with a lot of different. I had obviously had Darwin Tetro on the uh, on the podcast, and we spoke public order. Um, and since then, I've had the opportunity to speak with other public order guys from around the country. And every time your name seems to get brought up in one way or the other, um, as as <laughs> I don't want to say like the godfather of the current public order policing program in Canada, but it seems like a lot of what you've been able to implement in Vancouver has has spread wholesale kind of across the country and down also into some some of the training in the US. So can we talk a bit about that transition and how you got into the public order policing and uh, what you're doing with your unit and why it is so effective? For sure. And um, I'm incredibly, uh, well, I guess humbled that that, uh, that name. Thank you. I'm not sure I deserve it. Um, I do know Darwin. He's a great guy there doing some great things nationally. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, my journey started way back. I've mentioned the Navy a few times, but 80, 86, uh, just a little bit of crowd control, public order training uh, with the with the military. And then uh, I joined the West Midlands Police in 92. And my first uh, induction into it was from a, a very, very um, senior service sergeant who was our drill instructor. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away last year. And uh, But I hold him dearly. You know, he was a great instructor. And he was in the minor strikes. And one of the lessons, I'm not even sure if it was a sanctioned lesson, he actually got the public order uh, shields, the six-foot shields, flexible shields, out of an old coal shed at the training department. And he was, I think he was probably just showing us a little bit of history. And he said these shields were in... Uh, the, the strikes, the, the minor strikes. And uh, he said, we were there. And he started to tell a few stories of the old bobbies, uh, unfortunately, fighting some of the miners during some of the strikes under Margaret Thatcher's rule. And I just remember being behind, first of all, thinking, man, that sergeant has some cool stories. That was the first thing I thought. Uh, and the second thing, he, he got me behind one of the shields. And I remember seeing the scratches on the shield and it sounds sort of uh, a, a silly thing to say but I actually remember the sun hitting the shield and looking behind the shield and seeing the scratches and I thought man if this shield could talk the sergeant has some good stories but this shield would have some incredible stories and I kind of got caught up in the moment and I, we did a couple of drills which I don't even think was sanctioned and he, he just said some of you will be heavily involved in crowd control and public order over your career, he said. And I really want you to know it's a time that you could lose your life. It's dangerous, it's exciting, but it's dangerous. And he said, whenever you do your training, listen, take it to heart. It could save your life. And he said, anyway, enough of that. And we got on with it. He actually pulled me aside after the lesson, and he was a very influential gentleman. And he pulled me aside and he kind of called me kid. And he said, kid, I, uh, 
you're going to be involved in this. I can tell. He said, I just know you're going to be a public order guy, and I wish you luck, and thank you for taking the torch. Oh, uh-huh. okay. And I've always remembered the conversation, and um, I say, unfortunately, we lost him last year. So I went through the training, and then I went to uh, into my area of Birmingham where I was policing, and it, we had to do a four-day national training course. You get given the shields, uh, the Molotov cocktail training, which are the petrol bombs, as we call them. Um, we do the, uh, they used to call it the deranged man training, uh, which was the potentially, um, violent person with a sword. And we do all of these training, all with shields. And yeah, I became, uh, nationally qualified to national standards in the UK. And within a couple of three years working on the streets, um, going to a few events, soccer matches every weekend and midweek, being involved in a lot of crowd fights, um, demonstrations. I, I felt with my, my physical size, it was something I just felt I was good at. And um, I decided I was going to join what they called uh, in my department back then, the Operational Support Unit. It's also been called the Special Patrol Group, the Governor's Reserve. It was a full-time crowd control public order unit um, in Birmingham. There was uh, a van uh, carrier, as we called them, of eight officers and the sergeant and seven constables. And we drove around the three cities um, dealing with crowd control, public order, the soccer, soccer matches. If somebody was doing a raid on a bar or a pub, we'd be the ones that would go through the door. If there was um, some interesting phrases come out of English policing, and one of them I recall was yobs yobbing, which was your local youths that were being a nuisance and the local police uh, members uh, were just, you know, over, over, overruled with them. They would call us and we would roll up in the van. Uh, eight officers would get out and we would persuade these people to go away. Um, so we're using what we call the Public Order Act, and um, it's a special act for public order to keep order in the UK. And we became special. So I joined this unit. I did the European Championships in '96 as a, um, an attached member of the unit. And I remember uh, policing the campsite with the Dutch and the Scottish drinking heavily in a campsite. Uh, and just had some wonderful memories of policing public order. I joined the full-time unit. Did just under four years, became an anti-terrorist search officer on that unit, but made some of the best friends I'll ever have uh, working full-time uh, for four years on this full-time public order unit. And then eventually I came to Canada, and um, I guess I joined the crowd control unit, as it was called in Vancouver Police, and they were using at the time the Hong Kong model. Um, it's a model that's uh, used extensively across Canada by the RCMP. Uh, Darwin and his colleagues are very um, familiar with it, and I know it's used in other areas of the States as well. And it was uh, a model that was, in my view, different to what we had in the UK. I'm not going to say it's better. or it, it was the model that was in Canada. It was a model that we had. But the more I did the model, I, I, I guess I wanted to try, if I could, to influence Canadian policing with some of my experience and skill set. And I and it was very difficult having an English voice being in Canada, not coming across as a this way is better than your way. And it really was a difficult thing for me to try to do. But I actually 
wanted to do it, I could see some benefits from the UK model. And I felt that Canada, particularly my department, could benefit. Um, the model that we had in Canada at the time was uh, not as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess it wasn't as agile. It was a more defensive model. It was slower paced. Uh, you may have heard terms like the flying squad. In the UK, the flying squads, we drove around in vans. We were able you know, to jump out of these vans and form um, a line across the road with short shields and disperse crowds very quickly. So you're stopping the uh, collection of people on the road. You're dispersing people. I felt with the Canadian model at the time, um, it was well-drilled. The unit had some good tactics, some great people, some good training, um, but it was very defensive. It was a slower model and wasn't as agile. And eventually I was able, um, with a lot of respect to the program we had, just influence uh, some of the trainers, uh, influence some of the training and take opportunity to, uh, to help and to help bring training and tactics in the UK over first of all, to my department. And then I met people like Darwin who came to have a look. And yeah, word spread. Um, I was quite humbled. There was a couple of other people. It wasn't me alone. There was two or three other gentlemen, one by the name of Pete Swan and John Braithwaite, who were very instrumental. We had five or six, seven officers, and we kind of influenced the program. Coming up to the Olympics a couple of two years before the Olympics, um, was able to wholesale change the program, the equipment. We actually bought four vehicles, four vans, uh, and we modeled at the time, we modeled it on the UK model. And that developed into some of the commanders going across to the UK, having some bronze, silver, gold level training, uh, doing some training in-house um, with the supervisors, and then eventually changing the whole training model of the Vancouver Police Department to mirror the training of the UK public order national standard. So, yeah, it was uh, an interesting few years, a busy few years, and I can't say enough about the open-mindedness um, of the department. Uh, they actually brought me into the training department, uh, created a position where I became the crowd control coordinator, uh, later right. changed the name to uh, public order coordinator, and public safety coordinator. Uh, the unit went from being called the crowd control unit to the public safety unit. And then I became, I got promoted uh, to sergeant, did the exams, became a sergeant, and was actually kept in the position, I think, because of the Olympics. And uh, we started to bring in the horses, the dogs, negotiators, commander training, so a whole bunch of other things into that crowd control model and became known as the public safety unit. And then, as you know, there's been some great things happened since for both the Olympics, uh, which really showcased the, the capability of the department um, in that sort of holistic kind of use of the word public safety. We also did the public safety, the search courses. So we did the anti-terrorist search courses. Again, a few of the influences from the British uh, officers that joined the Vancouver Police Department. We set up a, a public order course, but we also set up a public safety anti-terrorism course. And the public order members uh, actually were the first ones to go on the course. So we cross-trained public order 
an anti-terrorism searching. So when the members are out on the road uh, in the public, they were actually anti-terrorist search aware. So you're doubling up your bang for your buck with your members. And I think the Olympics really showcase what we did. Uh, people like Darwin, uh, can't say enough. Um, the RCMP came across. They looked at the model. They had us out there prior to the Olympics at their training. We became very good friends uh, with a lot of the RCMP trainers um, across Canada. Um, and and I, I'm grateful to the term they used to describe me. That's um, quite the honor. And then eventually, um, as 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 our training developed, uh, we managed to get in a couple of courses, like the tactical advisors, uh, advisors to commanders in the UK. We did a tactical advisors course here. We've had bronze, silver, gold command courses over here. And we had people from Calgary, Edmonton, all across, come across. And it's been a very, very successful program for the VPD in particular. And one I've been very proud to be part of over the years. Um, yeah, it's been quite the right. And um, we've included a change in the training, the equipment, uh, going to lighter equipment. And of course, the vans have been instrumental in getting offices around the city. Uh, we've actually incorporated the bicycles into that training. And I saw recently over the last year, the bicycles have gone to a different level, partnering got with Seattle and other agencies. Um, and they've actually got light armor now for some of the bicycle riders. And that training has developed to a whole new level, thanks to our partnerships in America. So, yeah, I think it's uh, on the West Coast here. We're in a very, very good place uh, for public order and crowd control. Um, I've I've kind of taken that further in my own life. I've, I did my master's degree in 2010 and did emergency management master's degree. And I've become a little... Um, a little bit more knowledgeable about crowd psychology and, and why people behave like they do as part of that master's degree and studied a little bit more on anti-terrorism. And I, I'm glad to say that I teach as well. So yeah, the, it's, it's quite the journey. That's so interesting. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, and giving us the full background of that. Mm -hmm. And you brought up the Olympics a few times. And just for anybody listening, we're, uh, he was referencing the, the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. Um, Winter Olympics. One thing that I did want to touch on, I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm a Boston Bruins fan. So I think that'll key you into what I'm probably going to want to talk about. <laughs> um, in 2011, Stanley Cup final, game seven was held in Vancouver. There was a, I, I don't know which side you're on. If you're listening to this, you know, it doesn't matter which side you're on. Um, Vancouver didn't show up to the game. Boston kind of just steamrolled them in the, in the final game. And after the game in the city was one of the, the biggest kind of public order, I guess, incidents that you've had, uh, I think, in the city's history, right? So what can you walk us through a bit about that event, um, the, the 2011 riot? And then kind of how it came to be, what your involvement was, and and what was, I guess, learned from it from a, from an operational uh, and tactical perspective. Wow. That's a question. Did um, I give you too much on that one? <laughs> <laughs> how about this? Are you a hockey fan? No. <laughs> okay. I, I figured you're like you're you're probably a you're probably a football guy or a soccer guy. Uh, you can call it football. You don't have to be offensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured as much, but I mean I mean there's a good chunk of our listeners that are in the US. So if I don't say soccer, they're gonna think they're gonna okay. they're gonna be super confused. We can call it soccer. Um, <laughs> 
Okay, we'll call it soccer. Um, so, I mean, the because the, the 2011 riot was something, I mean, watching it on TV from where I was, it was, we were kind of, I think the country collectively sat there and was like, what the hell? The flash to bang on that was so instant. Um, you know, it's and, a great, it's a great question. And I, and I, I'll preface this, say these are just some of my views. Um, first of all, I think what you have to, what, what, what we recognize is, you know, uh, that series, it wasn't about the final game. Um, it, it was a series that grew. It was the seventh game. There was a lot of uh, hype um, from the last time it happened in Vancouver. It was way before my my time in Vancouver, where there was actually a disorder, a riot, if you want to call it a riot, in Vancouver. So there's a lot of media hype that was occurring, if you recall, around the time. Every news channel uh, you, you watched leading up was talking about you know the Stanley Cup riot from what was many many years before in the nineties. So I think there was a a hype that was building, but when you look at the actual uh, the build up to that event, there was a lot of good things that occurred. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems when I try to explain to people about what occurred on that day is you have to consider how many days there are between each game to plan. You know, and I'm sure Toronto, uh, with the the basketball, the planners and the police involved, and they did, they did a fantastic job. You know, you don't have much time as a department, as an agency, as a city, to plan from one game to the next. And you don't know what the next game could entail because you don't know the result. But... Over the few, I think the six games that we had, um, lots of plans changed. And you have to consider this is, you know, it's not a police event. And it's something I've said over and over again. And when I was interviewed as a professional officer after the event, I kept saying, this is not a police event. It's a hockey event, you know, and that's something that is missed in a lot of people's um in a rear view mirror, I guess. And I like to put it back. It This is a hockey game. It's not a police event. Uh, the police don't actually uh, organize the event. It's a city event organized through private industries, through the NHL. And, you know, it's not an event that the police actually host. However, we have a duty uh, to keep the peace. But the major event in the actual, people talk about the hockey riot. Well, the, the actual stadium was where the event was. So, you know, it was a, a riot that came about as a result of a sports event. So when you look at uh, things that can go wrong in crowd control, crowd dynamics, um, when there are events that involve um, sport, that is one of the what we would call triggers. And I'm sure Darwin may have spoken to events where the heart is used by people. Well, obviously, this is a sports event. You said you're a diehard Bruins fan. I'm not a fan of hockey, but I realize the Canucks and the people of Vancouver love their hockey. Um, but that day, it kind of built, um, and a lot of this is written down in the reports. And I don't particularly want to regurgitate what's been written in the reports. Um, but on the day, it was the final day. A lot of little things went wrong on the day, not particularly with the planning, but it was just, as they call it, sod's law. If it was going to happen, it happened. Um, somebody left their vehicle. You know, an electrician, I believe it was, went into a building, left a vehicle. Some security officers who were supposed to be on the fence line didn't show up for work. The liquor stores had been closed at a previous game. People were bringing liquor in from outside areas. 
because of the hysteria, people wanted to come down to Vancouver. Uh, you can look at the design of the live site. Maybe it could have been not elongated down the road, but you know, perhaps the screens put a different way. But the bottom line is, too many people came to a space that was not big enough for the estimated crowds that came down there. And the police department, you know, it, it we planned as a department to do what we thought was the right thing. Uh, we, a lot of people during the Olympic experience, a lot of our hot, hot points or flashpoints were up on Granville Street, Robson Street. You know, you put your specialist units up there. But simply put, I could walk from one end of the Georgia Street to the other in about 30 seconds on a normal day, barring the traffic, you know, 20 seconds even to walk from one side of the road to another. On this day of this event, it would take almost an hour to get through that crowd. It was dense. And when you start looking at crowd models of six people per square meter or seven people per square meter, you know, perhaps there was nine or 10 people per square meter. The fences that were put in were overwhelmed. So I think it's well documented what went wrong. Um, and I still bring it back to the fact that it was too many people in too short, a, too small a space. Um, people, unfortunately, were of the demographic of, you know, the younger generation, uh, predominantly male, uh, the hysteria, the excitement. But a lot of the first incidents that kicked off that day were caused by a few people who'd had too much to drink. The police presence down there was as big as it could be. Um, people say it wasn't big enough. I know at the time, Chief Chu defended the numbers, but we had every officer available down there, but just overwhelmed with the amount of people. And yeah, then you had these triggers and there's some videos out on YouTube there. You can view them. Um, little incidents that were occurring all over the Granville, Robson, Georgia areas, little flashpoints. And uh, yeah, it built and it built very, very quickly over a couple of hours. And uh, I remember sort of walking the area and uh, my, you asked me what my involvement was. I was actually a tactical advisor to one of the commanders. We had a command team, uh, two VPD officers, did a great job, and myself and another British officer who was also a tactical advisor, we were walking around our, our areas and in communication with each other. And you you say that you sense it as an officer who's been engaged in public order. Um, you sense it, and it's it's that feeling where you literally your hairs on your arms they stick up, and you get that little bit of a heart beat and. Uh, we met shortly and we just, we all sensed it. We just said, okay, we need to start getting our members to the equipment. We need to start thinking about bringing in, we had some officers who were in Surrey with the RCMP and obviously they had their own screens and their own entertainment in Surrey. We have to think about bringing patrol officers to this downtown core from the outsides of the city because we're going to need them. And those things were put into place very quickly, very early on, you know, four thirty, five o'clock. Uh, but unfortunately, you you know, uh, the, well, I say unfortunately, you won't think unfortunately. Unfortunately, the score did not go the way it was supposed to go. Bottles were thrown. The vehicle that was left inside one of the areas got set alight. There were some fights. And uh, yeah, it, it kind of went very quickly. What I would say, I was actually asked, I did some... Uh, 
I went to some of the court cases, some of the original court cases, and I was asked a question um, by a lawyer, and um, we were trying to we were trying to actually define the word riot for the series of court cases. It was one of the first ones, and I was asked, you know, were you scared? And it was a great question, and I and I said, you know what, I, I'm not scared. I wasn't scared for me. I'd been in so many um, public order disorders, riots, whatever we want to call them. I'd been in so many scuffles and public order situations across the years. I said to, to the judge, I wasn't scared for me. I was actually scared. And at the time, driving in the back of a police Yukon vehicle to get somewhere with the commanders, looking at the smoke and the disorder, there was chaos that was going on. I was more scared for the training and tactics that we'd worked so hard to implement. I was scared for the officers, who many of whom hadn't been in anything like this. They'd been in our training scenarios where we threw thunder at them, you know, hoping that the training would. But on this day, this was the first time many members of all of the departments that came, it wasn't just the VPD, it was RCMP and all of the local um, municipal officers that came uh, to help. This was the first time they'd been in anything like this. The last one was in the 90s. So I just knew the capability and the experience of the officers. I, I just was willing it to hold. And I just want to say that it was one of uh, the proudest moments uh, being out there. And it was probably about one in the morning and I'm sat on a wall with my head in my hands, you know, thinking, okay, it's, it's looks like we got this. I think we can go home in a few hours. Uh, it was one of the proudest moments looking at some of the officers who were just looking at each other, consoling each other, patting each other on the back, pouring water on their heads and looking down the road and shopkeepers were coming out and thanking us. I've never known uh, such a feeling that we'd achieved and achieved something massive. It went on maybe for four, four and a half hours. Very few complaints about the police. I think there was three formal complaints. And what the officers did that day, and thanks to all of the partners that came to help, uh, was it was superb. It was magnificent. And I remember the next morning we had to go in for a debrief. And I actually took a little trawl around the city, the battle zone for the night before, and there were people sweeping glass, uh, trying to get back to the state of normality. And I just felt very proud uh, to be a Canadian, uh, very proud of what the officers and the community had done. And we talk about a sense of community. It was absolutely overwhelming the next morning to see the whole community come out. We had our police vehicles covered in stickers to say thank you, yellow post-it notes, all the boarding up that had been done, messages of goodwill to the departments. Um, it was a fantastic moment the day after. And then we had the inquiry, and I, um, from being on, obviously, the front line that night, we had some famous people uh, come to see us. The Sedin twins came in to the department. We had uh, Michael Bublé came in just to say thank you, which was fantastic. Um, but then we had, obviously, the investigation, and I helped out as a logistics on the investigation to help um, the detectives and the officers brought in from all departments to come and look at that investigation just as an advisor to the evening and how it flowed. And I also became part of the right review implementation team, which was uh, the officer, the operational officer, trying to 
coordinate all of the recommendations from the various reports. And I was the operational lead uh, working for a superintendent and two fabulous analysts. Um, and we had to compile all of the reports and try and fix things that hadn't gone right, improve things where we could improve them, or in some cases, actually push back a little bit and say, no, you know what, that recommendation, we understand it, but there's a reason we don't agree with it. And that was my role afterwards. So yeah, I had quite a significant role, but I I say you don't do anything alone. There was hundreds of officers that night and the subsequent inquiry and the investigation that have done a fantastic job. Yeah, what a great synopsis there. I now that you and as you're going through it, I'm starting to get all these flashbacks in my head. And I'm and you were talking about the investigation. Mm. Um, I remember. I mean, my my vivid recollection of that was just um the the next day, all of the image. It looked like war zones. Like I don't know how many cars. I think there was dozens of cars that yeah. were overturned and uh, set on fire. Um, and it looked like it looked like it looked like a scene from a Hollywood movie is what it looked like. Um, yeah. And you're sitting there and you're like, what the you know, like this happened in Canada. Now, I mean, other places in the world, especially like in, in Europe, I mean, sport riot isn't really something that is completely, um, you know, it's not something that doesn't happen. I mean, you, there's soccer or football stadium riots that you know people get killed and that's the and there're these massive massive riots but to have it happen in Canada it was i think it kind of took everyone back and they were kind of like oh okay um i guess we're <laughs> you know i guess we're not as calm cool as collected as everybody seems to think we are um yeah and i think there's something that uh, i should mention and, and and i think it was something significant in that crowd control public order spectrum for the Vancouver area we after we had the olympics um you know, the Olympics was different and it was a, we had this, you may have heard this high-fiving strategy, uh, the meet and greet. Well, during the Olympics, uh, it became known as the meet and greet strategy. We'd been working at it on Granville Mall for many years. Uh, the then deputy, uh, Warren Lemke, he asked uh, me to write a plan and he was a huge advocate of changing the way the Granville Mall operated, taking the vehicles. Uh, we wrote a plan way back then, and I took the vehicles out of the mall, and we were invited. As people came out of the uh, the bars, we would literally meet and greet and say, hey, there's a cab. We changed the way the taxis lined up. So we diffused a lot of the tensions on Granville Mall before the Olympics happened. We became good at um, public safety policing on Granville Mall. Um, so we had a lot of practice at this meet and greet, being in fluorescent vests, being in the middle of the road, not standing under the, the shelters of, you know, in, in, in the shadows, being upfront and personal in a, in a very supportive way. So we were controlling crowds with a niceness, if that's what you want to call it. Um, so we, we redesigned, uh, I wrote a report years back, we redesigned the Granville Malls. So the Vancouver Police became very good at that model. Then we had the Olympics and we had huge crowds. It was a sporting event. Um, you know, if you look at back at pictures of what happened on the mall, we had shoulder to shoulder crowds, not quite as congested, but certainly up there that we saw, but the crowds were boisterous, but the VPD and the RCMP came down to help, uh, extremely well-pleased. Uh, but the people were family orientated, not particularly of that generation, 
the drinking was controlled. It was a celebration of sport. So some subtle differences. Um, just after something significant happened, we had um, an offer went out to uh, the for the fire service and the provincial ambulance service to come and join um, the Vancouver Police Department and actually join the public safety unit. So we'd already done negotiators and commanders and horses and dogs and bikes, and we put this unit together, the public order group, and we had some fabulous people in charge of it, and they were very knowledgeable. And so we actually invited, uh, and at the time um, when the invitation went out, uh, the uh, provincial ambulance service joined us. And during that riot, uh, a couple of years later, during that riot, if you watch the videos, you're going to see in the police ranks, just behind the shields, a couple of people in orange jackets, not yellow, they were orange. And they were members of the paramedics, they were paramedics, part of the provincial ambulance service who joined only a few months before the public safety unit of the Vancouver Police Department. And just a shout out to those paramedics who saved lives that day. They were right there. Their mandate was actually to help us the police department. They were right there in case officers went down. So then we had the riot, and uh, it was recognized as part of the recommendations that we couldn't get to some of the fires quick enough. Some of the fires were taking hold in cars. Um, you mentioned it looking like a war zone. It truly did. Uh, but we couldn't get the fire service into these hotspots. So there's you know the copycat, you set fire to this, the contagion grows and people will set fire to something else. And because we couldn't put the fires out, the fire service couldn't come in. We actually invited after the riot, the fire service to come in and be part of our unit. And that was a, a year or so, I forgot to mention, where the fire department of Vancouver, Vancouver Fire Rescue Service, joined the Vancouver Police Department and they actually became part of that unit. So we had one of the first fully integrated fire and police public order units. And it's been an absolutely uh, unique but fabulous tool for the Vancouver police. They've completely joined the unit. Um, we've amalgamated our training knowledge experience, doubled the training grounds in the areas They've managed to adapt some of the police methods that we have using the fire experience, um, even the numbers that are on the officers' backs to make sure we know where each other are. We use fire systems. And just by joining together with the fire service, uh, the Vancouver have gone to a different level. And of course, now you have, years later, the, the camaraderie on the road between the fire and the police at calls on the road. I know the two chiefs, both the fire chief and the police chief, have commented that that camaraderie has never been bigger or better in Vancouver than it has been the last few years. Um, and I think a large part of that is down to the public order training. Um, there was a gentleman I would like to give a shout out to, a guy called Frank Dodich, who was kind of the me of the fire department. He and I became good friends. Um, and we just wrote training notes on the back of napkins, as normally happens. And he went, he went uh, out on a limb, and he really put a lot of time and effort into what I call not just training with the police, but became, becoming part of the unit. And um, he became a powerhouse, not only in the fire department there, but he also went to work for the city shortly after and became a planner for the city. So we've gone from strength to strength in Vancouver, 
the experience is there. But I do believe that the system that they have right now, a large part of it comes down to both the fire and the paramedic service joining in partnership with the Vancouver Public Safety Unit. So I just forgot to mention that, and it's neglectful of me to do so. No, I think that's awesome. And I mean, this comes up in in conversations I have all the time when it comes to training, but, you know, going outside of your little bubble and getting knowledge and experience from other people in other specialties um, is, is key to evolution in training and your ability to operate effectively. So that makes a lot of sense when you say that it's like, Hey, we're bringing in all these other, uh, groups, these other agencies, departments, these trainers, these experts. And now you have a group, a conglomerate of people that their your sole job is to make this whole system work better and more efficiently. I couldn't and be I think- uh, more agreeance with you. And if you think about, uh, and the biggest thing I saw uh, is if you think about police officers uh, and, you know, I was lucky to be on a group of six or seven, eight, eight, guys and girls on a, on a van for three or four years. But what I see is when I look at the fire service in particular, you know, we went training and the first thing I see is, you know, four or five officers getting their equipment out of their trucks and vans. I see a, 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 a group of, of, of fire officers, like eight or 10, grab another eight or 10, and they're putting up the tents and equipment and the training site that we were on, which would normally take an hour to put up. It was up in three or four minutes. They were like soldier ants. It was fabulous to see. My military days came back. You know, it was, oh my, you, you talk <laughs> setting about up mod tents. setting up <laughs> tents, you know, but these guys and girls had joined this unit and the police officers, we stood there and I looked at one of my trainers and said, wow, we've just trebled our capability in staffing. Look at that. Like, but to the fire guys, it's what they do. They fabulous. They work in units, larger units. They live in fire halls together. You know, they the equipment and putting things away. And everybody, you know, not to say that we're inherently lazy as police officers. That's not true. I we work hard, but we work in small pods, one or two people. And when we come together in a group of fifty or eighty for a training day, we're still individuals. We get it going after a short while, of course. But I do feel the fire brought that. We stood in awe, and a couple of the sergeants came up to me and said, "Man, I wish our guys would do that." <laughs> we, we realize, you know, we have a lot to learn, and then the, the medical knowledge and the training techniques—you're absolutely right. You, you, you not only multiply; it was a force multiplier. It was wow! Look at the way, and then they bring their training and their equipment. You know, we're allowed to then use their training facilities, which you know are now open to us. And of course, the cost of training comes down because you're using their training facilities. And, I, and I'm just thankful to the Vancouver Fire Rescue Service for everything they did. Um, it's been a fabulous partnership. And I just know that the true winners are the people of Vancouver and the surrounding areas that come into the celebration of lights, you know, stand on the beaches, watch the spectacle that happens behind the scenes. Uh, it's an incredible. I've stood on the roof many times and watched the fire and the police and the paramedics and the volunteers open and close the beaches for these major festivals. It's seamless, you know, and and it's just incredible to see. But we've come a long way for sure. I'm very proud to say that we've come a long way. Yeah, that's awesome. There is one more thing that I do want to bring up and, and maybe speak to you before, you know, before we end our call here. And this, I don't know if, uh, if I'm, 
totally throwing a uh, curveball at you, but I want to talk a bit about social media and its role in, in crowd management, because when we talk traditional training for uh, public order, for crowd management, um, and you talk about things like protests and, and riots, um, you know, traditionally, you would have the people that are there, the officers show up, they get everyone to disperse, and that's the end of it. But with the prevalence of social media, and I think this was actually spoken about as part of the uh, the investigation with that 2011 riot, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that was kind of one of the first things where they're like, well, there's a lot of communication happening on social media now, so maybe something's happening in one area of the city and it's being posted and shared on social media so that now that's, it's kind of like, um, it's like when you talk about fire, it's like the fire's jumping from one area to another without there having to be a direct link. Um, and I think that is something that's we're going to have to start dealing a lot more of now. And I just wonder if that's something that you've actively uh, thought of and talked about and, and, or what your thoughts on, on that would be. So um, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a, it's not a curveball at all. And it's something um, that, you know, you have to, as police officers and as police departments, you have to get on board with. I think uh, when the riots were occurring, you know, leading up, people were saying, well, well, you're not looking at social media. And they were throwing out comments, you know, I can't believe you didn't see this. I can't believe. So there's different elements of social media. Um, there's sort of a world I'm involved in a little bit more now with my new sort of job where you're looking at social media for intelligence information purposes ahead of an event, you monitor social media. That's, uh, in my mind, uh, very important. You get, there are close sites, of course, but if, if it's out there on the web or it's out there on social media, absolutely, um, we should be looking at it. Absolutely, it's important if somebody comes across it to to raise it to the next level and to look at that information slash intelligence. But on the actual event itself, um, I think we've come a long way. I, I know for sure um, we'll open up for major events, a departmental operations center, which uh, like an emergency operations center, but purely for our department. If the event's large enough, we'll staff that. And uh, the social media officers, we call them, are in that um, operations center, not only monitoring sort of um, social media, what's out there in the social media uh, world on whatever platform you want to look at. There's so many nowadays. But we also use it, which is really important message. We use it, as do many other departments, to send our message, to send police messages on the platform that people are actually having an interest in event. Um, we generate, obviously, we'll have a police message on a police platform, but it's really important as well to understand that not everybody's listening to the police platform, but if it's a celebration of lights um, and celebration of lights has its platforms through the city, whoever the organizers are, to, to hook into those and to be aware of what they are, and to use social media and other communication platforms to, A, gather intelligence, but B, to send the message, hey, there's a storm coming in, um, you know, their train at this train station, 
has been delayed. However, this SkyTrain is open at this location. The buses aren't running. Uh, the beaches are full on the east. Please go to the west. All those public safety messages uh, I know are happening in the areas that I work, uh, which is a good thing. Um, and also using not just social media, but different types of messaging at the events. And a couple of successes that we have in the city that I work in is even the roadwork screens, you know, those roadwork screens, people come out of the train station and they see, you know, uh, drink responsibly, no drinking on the beach or the SkyTrain closes at one o'clock, whatever social, whatever message you want to convey, have it on the big screens. And we use them for direction of crowd flow. We've gone from the old orange and black ones, which are very prevalent across Canada, and there's now color ones. So color messaging, using train station um, billboards to put the message up. And I think an important thing that I've always spoken to during my training that I've done is, you know, decide who owns the problem. Because if it's a city event, the last thing you want is the police to be putting messages out that are different to what the city's messages are. You know, and and everyone says the police should be putting messages out, but I always like to suggest that we can reach out to the organizers and let them have some ownership. If it's a city event, they should be putting out some messaging in relation to this is not an event for pets or don't bring strollers to the crowded area. Um, you know, there are some ownership, I don't say issues, but some ownership uh, responsibilities that I think as police departments across Canada and other, other countries too, we should be pushing back and encouraging the organizers of these events. And some of them are private companies that make a lot of money, push back a little bit more and influence some of the event organizers and hosts to do some of that messaging. I've always been concerned over the years that the more the police do, uh, the more ownership we take if that makes sense. And sometimes it's not ours to take. And the public perception is, well, that's the police fault. They, and the, we're there to keep the peace and to keep public safety. But there's a trend where we tend to take on a little bit too much um, of the event. And that's always been at the forefront of some of the courses I've taken, some of the training is if you're a commander and you're, you're setting up these events, establish where those lines of communication are establish what message we own as a police department stay in your lane i guess stay in the lane that we're there for but yes if absolutely when public safety is compromised get ahead of it you know take ownership because at the end of the day when the inquiry comes we all know where some of that blame is going to be headed it's going to be to the police departments um and we can have a whole different debate on you know who's in charge of the event some subtle differences in the uk where the gold commander takes precedence as a police commander um as a gold commander the police commander is in charge of the event where in canada truly who is in charge of the event is it the nhl is it the city is it the police department is it the fire service you know and the eocs have directors the emergency operations centers have directors so ownership and who is actually going to cancel those events who ultimately would have canceled that hockey game it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, and that's something um, that I'm excited that I think you and I are maybe going to get a chance to work on and uh, maybe put some more information out there on that. But 
for right now, if there is somebody who's been listening to this and, you know, maybe they're the public order person for their department or maybe they're in a command level or they're they're interested in getting more information about um, just the the proactive nature of what you guys are doing. You know, can they contact you or can they contact uh, VPD and be like, hey, we'd love to get some more information about how you've built out your program. Um, is there is there resources for officers and agencies uh, to to get this type of information? Yeah, for sure. And um, I, I think the best thing to do is I'm on LinkedIn. I'm I'm quite uh, prevalent on LinkedIn. Uh, get a hold of me on LinkedIn and and ask for the question. And and I just don't want to overwhelm uh, emergency operations people right now with the COVID thing. I know a lot of the people that those questions may go to on an hourly basis having meetings for the COVID, but. Why don't we do this? If they flip me their contact details, it may be something I could help them out with personally, um, you know, and put them in the right direction. And I certainly know people in the department and uh, the public order uh, sort of hierarchical tree in the VPD into making sure we go through the right channels and betting the right questions in the right order. But just, just I don't want to offload that to the VPD right now, but send your questions on to LinkedIn, uh, find my profile, and absolutely, I'll, if I can help, uh, there's a lot of stuff that they've done has been very successful and a lot of stuff I've been involved in, um, as we've sort of alluded to that I might be able to help with, but never a problem to help. Yeah, it's awesome. And so if you're, if you're listening to this right now, if you go into the show notes or onto the show notes page, uh, you're going to get those links to, to Lee's LinkedIn uh, and that kind of stuff. You can also contact, uh, contact me directly either on the website or email me and I can get you in touch with Lee and uh, make that introduction for you. So, um, that's awesome, man. Hey, Lee, listen, man, I'm so excited and, and honored that you'd come on the show and take the time with me today. I know it's a, it's a holiday for most. And, uh, so I, I really, really appreciate it, my man. Not a problem. And thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, I, I honestly, uh, would like to say a great shout out, uh, that sounds very American and Canadian, doesn't it? A great shout out to everybody who's been involved in um, developing public order crowd control, not just in Canada, in Vancouver, where I work now, but the West Midlands, every, everybody involved in this. It's a huge world and it's a thankless world, um, but it's evolved from police officers to private security. I don't want to miss anybody out, but you know, it, it, to fire, to paramedics and to yourself on the show here. Um, it's a thankless world, but when things go wrong, uh, people are very quick to blame and point the finger. And I think it's important that we all have our ducks in a row. So to everybody involved in this world, it's an important world and keep fighting the good fights. And thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I hope it's been of value to people. Yeah, I 100% echo what you just said there. And uh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. And I'll talk to you very, very soon. Thank you. Have a good one. All right, that wraps up another episode here on Tactical Breakdown. If you like what you're hearing, if you're enjoying the content and finding it actionable and useful, consider subscribing to the podcast. You're going to stay up to date on all of the current events with law enforcement training around the world. And if you haven't already heard about the International Law Enforcement Training Summit, you need to jump over to iletsummit.com. Check that out. The live version is done and gone. That took place in July 2020. But you have the ability to get lifetime access to all of the training that's been developed for a very, very, very low price. Make sure to use the promo code BREAKDOWN to save even more. Check that out at ILETSummit.com. Thanks again for being here with us at the Tactical Breakdown. And until next time, stay safe. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.